Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. When Charles I left London, he set in motion a chain of events that led inevitably to civil war. The state power was now split physically into two mutually antagonistic camps. And this contradiction, fundamental contradiction, could now only be resolved by force of arms. Charles and uh, his wife, Henrietta, no longer felt safe in, in the capital, and therefore they fled, first of all, to Hampton Court, which is a few miles up the Thames. And even there they didn't feel safe. It was still too close uh, to London, so they moved again to, from Hampton Court to Windsor, for a few, few miles further away. And even there they didn't feel safe, and they were right not to feel safe because the mass agitation, the revolutionary agitation in London was continuing unabated all the time. The masses now turned their attention to the House of Lords, which was uh, continually plagued with mass demonstrations and pickets of all sorts. Uh, and the masses were demanding uh, the names, that the, the public, they published the names of all those Lords who consistently voted against the decisions of the House of Commons. This obviously put the fear of God into the, into the, the Lords, who, who concluded, I suppose, from their point of view quite rationally, that the mob, the London mob, was being controlled by their enemies in the lower house, by the parliamentary opposition, by Pym and others. Now this is an accusation that's frequently made. It's the actual relationship between Pym and uh, the, the, the London crowd, the mob, to use that expression, uh, has never been completely clarified, but certainly it wouldn't be correct. It was completely out of, uh, out of their power. A PIM could not control the masses now, although to some extent they encouraged them to, to, to come onto the streets for their own purposes, but they weren't too uh, keen when the masses were going further than what they intended. That's the point. And this movement, like the Sorcerer's Apprentice, once it's conjured into action, it was very difficult to control. Here's a quote from, from uh, one of these uh, alarmed parliamentarians. The rabble, <laughs> they always use this terminology, of course. The rabble being at the door, they were at the, literally at the door of, uh, of the House of Lords every day. The rabble being at the door to execute whatever, whatever they were directed by the leaders of the commons, you see the, the argument, the Lords gave way, influenced by fresh movements among the common people who openly support the design of the most seditious, that's really the most seditious elements in Parliament. Now this of course is typical of uh, what you might call the police mentality. Uh, for the ruling class and its agents, the, the masses are never capable of acting on their own, independently, as an autonomous force. They're always going to be nipped be manipulated somehow by unscrupulous demagogues and, and, uh, 
agitators and people of this, people from outside and so on. In this case, manipulated by the opposition in Parliament, which frankly, at, at best, is an over-exaggeration and at worst, is an outright, outright falsification. Oh no, the masses were moving very much uh, under their own steam, under their own leaders, by the way. They, they had their own leaders in the, in the form of the, the uh, religious radicals, the preachers and so on and so forth, the apprentices who played a leading role. Oh no, they were quite capable of of acting on their own without being led by anybody, as a matter of fact. And that was the problem, a big problem for the ruling class, including for the uh, parliamentary opposition, if it comes to that. Now, by this stage, of course, the royalists were getting fed up the, in the House of Lords. They, they drew the conclusion, quite uh, logically, that uh, they couldn't continue anymore, that further resistance was useless, which, of course, it was. They were, they were impotent now. That's an interesting point. With all the power theoretically the power that they possessed as the leaders of the land once they were co co confronted with the movement of the masses that was it they could they, they, they turned out in practice to be utterly impotent and that's an important lesson for us which one which we should learn even today and they began to withdraw one by one they began to give up and withdraw to their comfortable residences in the countryside i quote there's a, a report of a chapter called thomas smith reported to sir john pennington the following Quote, many of the popish and malignant party, as they call them, reported, uh, reported begin now to leave the houses of commons, the houses, and retire to their houses in the country, out of a panic fear of the multitude, who from all the counties, I'll come to that in a moment, who from all the, the, the counties come daily in thousands with petitions to the houses. That's right. Other, other, others uh, went further than their house in the countryside. They fled abroad. They fled abroad, quote, sick at heart at seeing the government of their country under the control of the shameless cupidity of a few, supported by the, by the passions of, of a licentious populace. Yes. Now, that is an interesting remark, what, what, they, what the chap just said, about people coming from the, the counties, from the provinces like a heavy rock thrown into a pond. The events in London immediately caused the waves and, and got an echo in, in the outlying areas in the provinces, beginning with those counties, precisely, those regions and counties nearest to the capital, what's known today as the home counties. On January the 11th, 1642, by coincidence, the, the very same day when crowds of people triumphantly escorted the five uh, men and, and Lord Mandeville, uh, who Charles had attempted to arrest, were triumphantly escorted back to Westminster. That very same day, the 11th of January, it's reported that the men of Buckinghamshire marched into the capital. And here's a quote from an eyewitness. They were about 3,000 on horseback. The others were on foot, three and four in a rank, coming to Westminster. There were said to be as many as five or six thousand altogether. That's just from one county, from Buckinghamshire. On the 20th of January, six thousand came from Essex. We'll speak about Essex in a moment, which is the, at the eye of the storm, the revolutionary storm. On the 25th of January, three or four thousand from Hertfordshire. All out, outlying areas around, uh, even within the M25, if I'm not mistaken, close to, to London. Near a thousand arrived in London on the 15th of February with a petition from Leicestershire, a bit further away, and two days later, between 1,500 and 3,000 from Sussex. In other words, 
revolutionary London was no longer on its own. And of course, this uh, colossal mass movement, now acquiring a genuine national uh, dimension, leads to a collapse, a total collapse of uh, royal power in London. The authority of the king, as Hume admitted, was reduced to nil. Under the pressure of the masses, the reaction of the conservative majority in the House of, of Lords simply collapsed. Such that on the 1st and 2nd of February, what was left of the House of Lords wasn't very many. I think there were only about 16 of them left that were prepared to attend. The others were terrified out of, the, out of their skulls. Uh, what was left of the House of, of, of Lords joined with the Commons in a petition to the King to put the Tower of London and all other ports and the whole militia, which is the whole armed forces of the land, shall, uh, uh, into, the, into the hands of such persons as shall be recommended unto His Majesty by both Houses of Parliament. In other words, a demand that the King should relinquish his control of the armed forces of the land and that these armed forces should be placed in the hands of people, of commanders, loyal to the House of Parliament. And finally, on the 5th of February, to, 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 to cap it all, the Lords finally agreed to exclude the bishops from, from, from their house, from the House of Lords. In other words, to put it bluntly, the loyalist cause in London was utterly ruined, and it was ruined in a few days by this colossal, irresistible movement of the masses. There you see the colossal power of the people once they begin to move and mobilize and, and, and act in their own interest. Now, even behind the stout walls of Windsor Castle, which are considerable, if you've ever been to Windsor, it's worth a visit. These are very thick walls indeed. Even be behind these thick uh, fortifications, the king still didn't feel, feel safe. He was too close to London still. Mm -hmm. So he decided to move again to the north. And on the 23rd of February, Queen Henrietta Maria left for the continent. She didn't leave on her own way. She had uh, quite a nice, uh, <laughs> some nice things in, uh, some pretty things in her accompanying luggage, including the crown jewels, if you please, which you can now see in the, if you visit the, the Tower of London. She, she, she goes away with the tower, crown jewels of the nation stashed in her bags in the hope of raising funds for her beleaguered husband, who now decides to move in in the light of the latest developments, which obviously convinced him that London was a lost cause, he decided to move to safer territory in the north of England, where he had a more solid base of support among the great feudal nobility, the big landowners of the north, Yorkshire and so on, which provided him with, with a base. And therefore he established his headquarters in, in York, where he began to assemble his followers and to organize his forces. On the 4th of June, there comes quite a decisive uh, moment when a group of nine peers, nine, nine members of the House of Lords, now in exile, of course, nine members of the House of Lords published a manifesto stating that they could not take their seats in the House of Lords until they had security, I quote, to sit with the liberty and that condition in that the peerage of England formerly have done, secured from all menaces or demanding any account of our particular votes and from tumultuary assemblies. It's a little bit like, if you will excuse me the aside, it's a little bit like the divine right of kings. It's, a, it's the divine right of the lords. It's a little bit, it reminds me of the right wing of the parliamentary Labour Party demanding to be freed of the control of the tumultuous assemblies 
of the rank and file of the party, same kind of thing. See, it's a time doesn't things don't change with time. And this manifesto of the Lord's, in effect, was the the signal, if you like, the signal for a declaration of open warfare. And therefore, at this time, the mid uh, the summer of 1642, both sides begin to arm in, in, in a serious way. Charles started to raise an army. He couldn't do it uh, legally through Parliament. And therefore, he used an old traditional medieval uh, method called the commission of a fray. We'll deal with that in a moment. While the Parliament, on its part, made a call, a call for volunteers for its militia, and that got a tremendous response. If I'm not mistaken, 4,000 apprentices, these are the, uh, the stormtroopers of the revolution. The tough guys, the hard nuts, 4,000 uh, apprentices immediately volunteered to join the revolution of the army of the, uh, of the parliament. A committee of public safety was set up. You remember that? That the French Revolution did the same thing. Committee of public safety was set up. Uh, led, and its leading figures, by the way, were, were Hamden, Pym, and Hollis, members of the traditional left, left wing of parliament, the opposition in parliament. Now, the setting up of this committee, by the way, and the formation of a parliamentary army, what does it mean? This was the formal expression of the fact that the entire nation was now divided into two hostile camps. This is something which Lenin described in his famous expression, which you may have come across. Dual power. Oh, yes. Dual power is when the state power, the armed power, because that's what the state ultimately is, is divided, it's, it breaks apart, it's asunder, and therefore you get a struggle between two antagonistic uh, groups of power, which must be settled by force of arms, it, can't be, it can no longer be settled by, by words. And therefore both, both sides settled down trying to get hold of the arms, which we'll come to in a moment. Uh, yeah, that's true, but at the same time, you know, it always happens, it happens in any war, it happens also in this case, that in the in early stages, uh, both sides hesitate to take the first step, to fire the first shot. Uh, they hesitate, they vacillate like two wrestlers uh, staring at each other. You see wrestlers in the ring, uh, they, before they come to grips, they, they try to size up their opponent and so on and so forth. This is partly, of course, to gain time. In, in this case, they, they needed time to, to, to get an army together, to arm and to raise finance and so on and so forth. It also plays the role of trying to put the blame on the other side, you know. And both of them, of course, are calling for peace. <laughs> both of them have one peace, none of them like war, you know, it's not our fault. This was always the fault of the other guy as well. So, yeah, they all talk about peace all the time during this uh, 40 war period. Uh, it, it brings to, to, to my mind a, a phrase by Bertolt Brecht, that wonderful uh, Marxist uh, poet and playwright. He once thought, I don't, can't remember where, when the leaders speak of peace, the common people know that war is coming. <laughs> and that was certainly true in this, in this case. But I mean, the, 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 the extremes to which both sides were going was incredible. The king, for his part, wrote a long letter complaining that he was really in favour of Parliament. Of course, yes, everyone knows that. That's why he dissolved it about five times. He's really in favor, but he wants a free parliament, you see, on the basis of the manifesto of the world. The parliament is not free anymore, as if it was free before when he dissolved it. I mean, this is just the height of uh, 
It's a surreal kind of uh, hypocrisy. And as for the parliament, it's even more comical. They argue that they, they're in favour of the king. He's in favour of the parliament. And they're in favour of the king and he's in favour of parliament. So why they, why they can't do a deal, who knows? But anyway, what they were saying is that they were fighting, they were struggling, if you please, to save the king from wicked counsellors who they claimed had kidnapped him. So all they wanted to do is to save him from his own people. This is really comical. Yes, but this, this quarrel now, uh, it, it's, no longer, it's no longer funny at all. It's very deadly serious. And now the whole nation is divided. The whole nation is divided into two hostile, irreconcilable camps. The quarrel between king and parliament now is being discussed. Imagine it, it's being heatedly discussed in every marketplace, in every street corner, in every family, around every fireplace. Families are divided, sons are divided against fathers, fathers against sons, and so on and so forth. All over the country, people are taking sides. They must take sides. The time of vacillation now is over. You've got to take sides. Are you with the king or are you with parliament? And of course, this becomes increasingly angry and bitter. It is necessary also to remind ourselves that this is a period of uh, quite a deep economic depression. In part, it's caused by the political crisis, the depression in the, in the world trade in particular, which, which creates a lot of agitation in the, among the clothing workers in the clothing industrial areas. We'll, we'll deal a little bit of that in this session. And also, next time I'll deal with Bradford, where there was a, a very important uprising. But in essence, I, I come to the point, in essence, this is really, we strip away all the uh, unnecessary things, the secondary features. This is a struggle between rich and poor. And this was, it played a fundamental role. Of course, uh, nowadays, these idiot historians, the bourgeois historians, gossip historians, I call them, you know, they try to blur, I'll, I'll deal with this perhaps a bit next time, they try to blur the differences that no, they were aristocrats on both sides of this, but we'll deal with that later on. Don't you believe it? The fundamental division here is between rich and poor, we make no mistake about it. And the king's gang, of course, were mainly wealthy, of large, large, uh, landowners, feudal landowners, and the wealthier gentry. Yes, also a section of the wealthier merchants, the oligarchs who ran the city of London and, and other cities. But uh, the king, to raise his forces, of course, he, he uses who? He uses the aristocracy. In Somerset, for example, the, he sends the Marquis of, of, of Hartford to, to rouse the, uh, the local gentry in, in Somerset. Yes, but he immediately uh, meets resistance. From who? From the poor people. Oh, yeah. From the men with no shirts. The same people that rose up in London, including the peasants, but they're not just the urban poor, but it's quite interesting to see a large participation of, of peasants who are also suffering from all kinds of hardships. In this particular case, the, the, Mar the Marquis of Hertford is, is, is met with thousands, I quote, a witness. Thousands of fighting men and women. Yes, the women were playing a, a key role in all of, all of this movement. Thousands of fighting men and women, some bringing pitchforks, dung picks, and such like weapons, not knowing poor souls whom to fight against, but afraid, they were, afraid as they were of the papists. Well, I mean, this is often stated that this movement was anti-Catholic. Well, it was. It was. Yes, but if it was, there was a reason for that. Most of these people are, are Protestants, they, they, they're Puritans. They've heard about the massacres in Ireland 
and they are concerned, to put it mildly, they're terrified actually, of Catholic plots around the king and queen also, which, by the way, was quite uh, well-founded, these suspicions, you know. And they were terrified that the king was going to bring a Catholic army from Ireland, which was his intention, be sure of it, it's a proven fact. And, of course, they, they were terrified that the, the massacres that were taking place just across the Irish Sea would also be taking place against them. So this was a, a movement of self-defense, but it was also, be sure of that also, a movement against rich people, against the fat cats, against the, the landlords. Both Catholics and Protestants were, were raided, actually. In South Moulton in Devonshire, now here's an interesting point. You find this repeated time and time again. I don't have time. I wish I had time. I don't have time to give all the examples. I just give one or two for lack of time. But it's a constant feature that the respectable parliamentary opposition in many areas, the, the gentry who supported Parliament, were, quite, were not keen to fight at all. They wanted a reasonable relationship with these aristocrats, so they didn't put up a, a serious resistance unless and until it was taken out of their hands by the men and women of no shirts, if it's possible to say that. In South Moulton, for example, uh, I think it was the Marquis of Bath, was it? I can't remember. Yes, the Earl of Bath was sent to, to do the king's dirty work, to, 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 to execute the king's commission of a raid, in other words, to raise troops and raise money for the king's army, turns up at South Moulton and the respectable town council, who are parliamentarians, what do they do? Well, they, they, they invite him for lunch, <laughs> if you please. They invite him into the town. Here's the enemy. They invite him into the town. Oh, 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 on condition, of course, that he gives his word that he's not going to execute the king's commission of money, which he gives. <laughs> and as he's sitting down to his very pleasant lunch with these respectable gentlemen, then the trouble starts. I quote, the common sort of the town, the common sort, you know, the rabble, the common sort of the town fell into a great rage with the mayor and his company for giving license that they should enter, that's the, the, the royalists, and swore that if they did attempt anything, if they did anything there to read their commission of a thing, they would beat them all down and kill them if they were hanged for it and thereupon betook themselves to arms, both men, women, and children, about the cross in the marketplace. There we are, insurrection, in other words. Chap goes on. I do verily believe that there were in number at least 1,000, some with muskets, muskets loaden, some with halberds and blackbills, that's a kind of axe, some with clubs, some with pikes, some with dung, uh, uh, dung uh, shovels, and some with great poles. The women, women, there's no the, the, the role of the women in this. The women had filled the steps of the cross, that's the cross in the center of the square, with great stones and got up and, and got up and sat on them, swearing that if they did come there, they would brain them. A butcher's wife came running with a lap full of ram's horns to, for, for to throw at them. Amongst this crew, there were both men and women, he insists on this, both men and women with clubs and staves, uh, which, do which do daily beg from door to door. Beggars. The, the, the lowest of the low are participating in, in, in that. And when some of the gentry approached the cross, the people gave a shout and did cry, 
they become typical West Country accent. What happened? Well, the gentry and their servants at once got the message, they took cover, and the Earl and his company left the town to the accompaniment of a hail of stones. And that, that, that ended that particular commission of a fray. They got in a fray, but they didn't get much of a commission. The most interesting, perhaps, case, there are, many, there are many, too many for me to mention, is the case of Sirencester. By the way, I insist all these air, this area I'm talking about is, is a cloth making area in a state of depression and poverty, dire poverty, and inhabited mainly by Puritans, quite extreme uh, uh, Puritans. Uh, Lord Sanders here was, had the uh, unenviable task of attempting to, to execute the, the, the king's uh, commission of a fray in Gloucestershire, but his attempt, quote, was stifled in the birth and crushed by the rude hand of the multitude before it saw the, the light. Case in, in point is, is, is Sirencester. Sirencester is the center of the uh, manufactured and, and close to the cloth making area of South Wales, the West Rostis, uh, and the center of Puritanism, Puritanism among the lower people. The townsmen suspected that he intended to proclaim the commission of a ray, and they put, they put the chains across the streets to keep him out. And a thousand people came in from the surrounding countries, of the peasants, that is. A thousand people came from the countries to assist them. So well, finally, they, they surrounded the house where, the, where the, uh, which Lord Sanders was present, uh, with, with 30 armed men armed with swords around him. Uh, in the end, he, he had to come out and ask them what they wanted, which wasn't a difficult question to know. And they wouldn't go away and, until they got a, 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 a written, that he would give a, a written promise not to execute the commission of array. He went back into dinner again in the hope of enjoying a, a peaceful meal, but no, no hope of that. Because they continued to demand why he had come. He came out and told them that it was only to confer with the gentleman, with the gentleman, of course, with the gentleman for the peace of the county, which didn't sound quite correct. Finally, they demanded that he should be arrested and taken to London, and therefore he was forced. Imagine the Lord Sanders didn't have a chance to finish his meal. Uh, they smuggled him out of the back door on foot through, through, through a back way to escape. When the country, uh, this is, this is a, a, an eyewitness account, when the country people found that he had escaped them, they were, quote, extremely enraged and I'd like to have pulled down the house where he had been. But finding his coach, quite a smart vehicle, I guess, the equivalent of a Rolls Royce or something, you know. Finding his coach, we'd been, which he'd been forced to leave behind him in his flight, they pulled it into the marketplace and cut it and tore it all to pieces, delighting in, in, in this revenge and rustic triumph. You see this? Now this, this gives you a flavor it's a, small, it's a few small examples of what was taking place all over the country. But <clears throat> perhaps the most uh, extreme case, the most striking case, was nearer to London in Essex. Essex is partly nowadays, but it's, it's partly in London. But in August 1642, rioting began against uh, what were known as malignants and papists, that's the royalists and, and, and Catholics began in Colchester and spread all over Essex and, 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 uh, and Suffolk. It started with the rumor that a wealthy Catholic Lord, Sir John Lucas, was intending to leave with 12 horses and arms to join the king. And what, what, what happened was an immediate spontaneous, all this is spontaneous, it's not organized at all. 
spontaneous movement. They gathered together besides the bands, the train bands, that is the militia, 5,000 men, women, and children, which I feared might do some hurt. I therefore, this is the mayor speaking, I therefore, being accompanied by some other justices and aldermen, made proclamation in several places uh, here that, uh, that, that there were tumults at one o'clock in the night and several times since, charging the people to, to, to depart. They, however, regarded us no more than they do a child. They didn't barely notice it at all. They continued. And the disturbances continued. In, in, the mayor of, of, of Colchester eventually sent to London to ask what, what on earth he should do about it. The parliament couldn't give him much assistance. And therefore, the Sir John Lucas's house was attacked, was raided, was... Uh, Looted, and to bear in mind again, these, this again is a cloth producing area of, of, of Puritans. Very poor people living through a depression, probably hungry, hungry if it comes to that. They see this obscene wealth, this luxurious uh, wealth, these people. And therefore, of course, they go to their houses looking for arms. That was the reason they were going there. They were, they were convinced they were cavaliers hiding there. And they didn't find any cavaliers. They found quite a lot of arms, however, which they took, and the horses and so on. And while they're about it, they help themselves to a lot of other stuff. Well, it's just too bad. I mean, people are, under those circumstances, people are not too concerned about the rights of private property. Uh, this is a, a spontaneous eruption of the mass, and it spread. It spread immediately, not just to, uh, not just to uh, Essex, but, but, but the, the neighbouring county of Suffolk, also uh, based on the same industry, of course. And therefore, there, there was a, an explosion of, 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 of this, this colossal movement of anger, which, of course, is the result of years and decades, you must understand, of oppression, of exploitation, of hatred of the rich. You know, it was undoubtedly a class struggle. And don't, don't, take, don't just take my word for it. This was understood. And it was understood by the parliamentarians, by the moderates in London, who frankly were not at all happy with this. They were quite uh, alarmed. Now, I'll say this, is it, it, I mean, you find like that ridiculous program on television that the BBC put on, you know, it can be reactionary, it can be conservative, and also philistine, <clears throat> superficial analysis of events. These people, of course, all come from the same class, privileged classes, of course, the well-to-do, the snobs, the university snobs from Oxford and Cambridge and other places like that, you know. And they have a complete contempt for ordinary people. Their attitude today is exactly the same as the attitude of their contemporaries uh, three or four hundred years ago. The, the rabble, the mob, the ignorant people, and so on and so forth. Well, maybe they don't have all, all degrees in uh, sociology in the University of Cambridge and Oxford, but by God, these people know what they want. Or more correctly, maybe they don't know exactly what they want, but they know what they don't want. That's for sure. And let's make one other point absolutely clear. You can say what you like. Oh, they were excesses. Yes, there were excesses in every revolution. One has to deal with that. There were many excesses in the French Revolution, which to this day they, they mourn about and so in a hypocritical manner, leaving aside the atrocities of the ruling class. Of course, they're not interested in that. Yeah, but you see, this movement of the masses also played an important role in the forthcoming military struggle. You see? It's not an accident that after these uh, mass uprisings of the people in, in Essex and Suffolk, 
in those counties, there was no royalist movement whatsoever. It was crushed. The aristocrats were terrified out of, out of their minds, quite rightly so. And uh, they, they lived in terror of the masses. And this terror played a role. Yes, terror plays a role, of course. In all wars, terror plays a role. And they, they, they were terrified, rightly terrified of the masses. And therefore, the commission of a fray in those areas failed miserably. And that, by the way, the parliamentarians were a bit ungrateful when they when they uh, looked down on these masses and tried to curb them and tried to rein them in and were unsuccessfully in the main. Yeah, but you see, this gave Parliament time. These movements, these spontaneous revolutionary movements gave Parliament the time it needed to create an army and to fight the reaction, which they did, by the way, as we'll see next week, with extreme reluctance and very inefficiently. I'll say this about it. If in the, in, the, in the coming months even, if Parliament and the forces of Parliament and the leaders of the Parliamentary Army had shown the same amount of revolutionary determination as, as these poor, ignorant uh, people which I just described to you, the civil war would have been won before it started. The royalists would have been crushed immediately. Yes, but that wasn't what they wanted, as we will see next time. It wasn't what they wanted. And the, the ga a gap opened up very soon, not just between Parliament and the King, which is what we've been discussing so far, but also, yes, between the, the moderates in Parliament, the other more radical people in Parliament, such as Cromwell, the independents they would be known as, and the mass of poor people. You see, the, the, the fundamental feature in all of this is fear of the masses. Fear of the masses, not just, not just among the papists and, the, uh, and the, the royalists, but also on the part of, uh, on the, part of the, the royalists. Let me just finish with a quote. I mentioned the events of Cyrencester. Yeah, here's a quote from, from, from the period. Oh, a, quote. a Puritan parliamentarian minister in Gloucester suspected that the fury that took hold of the ignoble multitude, that's the same kind of language, the class snobbery language, you know, that the, the, the fury that took hold of the, the ignoble multitude in, at silence testing sprang as much from the opportunity to vent their humours, yeah, to vent their humours in protest at their usual, at their, at their usual restraint and subjection, as from love to the causes of God and Parliament. Yeah, here, here, a truer word was never spoke. And although he was glad that the commission of a fray was crushed in, in Cyrusester, he gave a warning that prudent men should, quote, promote and maintain such popular movement, yet no further than themselves can overrule and moderate. Just sounds just like the Parliamentary Labour Party, is it? Sounds like Mr. Stammer, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it does. And uh, the comment of uh, the comment was he suspected that the people and himself were not really on the same side at all. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider, or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, 
please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.